Aloha, everyone, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. My name is Christina Laney-Mitri, and I'm your host. Today, we'd like to continue our Sustainable Leaders series and have a talk story with Kirsten Faulkner, the Executive Director of Historic Hawaii Foundation. We will learn how to uh, put Hawaii's historic buildings, structures, objects, sites, and, and how they play a big role in our future with listening and learning from the past. Um, we're going to dive into the past of Hawaiian culture, not only how it reveals a sustainable way that we once lived, but also unfolds a thriving community that worked together with the land, ocean, and people. And um, this just goes to show how preservation is precious, and we'll learn how uh, Historic Hawaiian, Hawaiian Foundation does that. Aloha, Kirsten. Aloha, Christina. It's so nice to be here with you. You too. Well, what I would like to do before we begin is read your bio really quick. Um, Kirsten, she is the Chief Executive of Historic Hawaii Foundation, and she oversees all aspects of its preservation programs, strategic planning, business lines, and operational matters. Prior to joining HHF in 2006, Faulkner was a senior city planner for the city and county of Denver. She holds a master's of arts in urban and environmental policy from Tufts University and is a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. Okay, well, let's dive right in. Welcome. And what is your background? I always like to start there because I know it sounds like you were in Denver. Uh, maybe how did you make your way over to Hawaii and get into this world of sustainability? You know, like a lot of people, um, Hawaii found me more than I found Hawaii. And it's um, been a, a long and winding road, but I'm originally from Colorado. So the Four Corners area, which is the Southwest where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. So it's sort of high desert, low forest, right on the edge of the mountains. And that area is actually known on the continent as um, the county with the highest density of archeological sites in the West. So this idea of having um, archaeology and indigenous peoples right in the backyard, literally, we would dig in the dirt and, and dig up pottery shards and arrowheads and, you know, do class field trips to see archaeological sites. And I think that really embedded a, a love of history and um, exploration and wanting to know about the people who came before. So that was sort of my introduction to what is preservation. Um, it was really about learning about how people interacted with place and how that place shaped people and then how people shaped their place. And when I went um, to study, it was really with the idea of doing um, environmental studies and sustainability and natural environment. And in the course of doing environmental policy work, I was really introduced to this idea of urban planning and how communities are formed and how people can make great living spaces in the complement nature and climate and um, the, the natural world. So that nature, culture, history, built environment connection, I think really underlies a lot of the work I do today with Historic Hawaii Foundation. And of course, it's a natural fit in Hawaii as well. You know, that sense of indoor outdoor living, the sense of we take care of the land and the land takes care of us, that is deeply embedded as an ethic of this place. So it was a nice fit. And then how did you find your way to Hawaii? Oh, you know, it was very interesting. Um, I had a, a great friend who was maybe about four years older than me. And so she was always doing everything first, you know, she would graduate first and go out to college first. And, and she came to Hawaii from Colorado um, for school. 
and had come back for the winter breaks, the Christmas breaks, and was talking about this wonderful experience she had in this island in the Pacific and how it spoke to her. And for the next four years, I thought, I'm doing that too. So I, I came here for school, was here for about four years. And then um, right after getting my, my bachelor's, I moved um, to Asia. I was in Taiwan for a few months and then eventually joined the Peace Corps. And then I was in Thailand. Um, for the, the Peace Corps time and, and spent some time in Southeast Asia. And then eventually went back to Boston for my master's degree and then ended up in Denver doing community planning. And then when the position opened with Historic Hawaii Foundation, I was invited to, to apply and made my way back. So it was not a straight and direct road. You know, it, it kind of wandered all over the world, but eventually found my way back here. Well, I'm glad that you're here. It's I didn't realize it was from 2006. It's been a long time already. It has. <laughs> time you know, is flying. When, when I took the position, um, I agreed to stay for three years, and it's been 16. <laughs> so I guess that all worked out. I know. So for those of you who don't know, why don't we jump into what the Hawaii Historic Foundation does and, and how it all began, maybe from from the beginning, how it began and then what it does and, and, and then go from there. So Historic Hawaii Foundation is a nonprofit organization. It, um, we work statewide and it was founded in the early 1970s. Um, so it was incorporated in 74, but of course there were some earlier meetings and, and so forth. So if you think back to the late 1960s, the early 1970s and what was happening in Hawaii at the time, um, you know, it was um, post-statehood, a lot of building boom, the jet age was starting, so tourism was becoming a thing, um, the Vietnam War was going on, so there was this huge military presence, and this kind of rush to um, modernize and rush to Americanize was really being pushed. And so there was this rapid, rapid, rapid change that was sort of bulldozing everything. Highways were being built and, and bypass roads and high rises and hotels and resorts. And this um, kind of boom cycle also had a lot of casualties. You know, Chinatown used to be twice as big as, as it is today, but all of Aala and everything Malka Veritania was being bulldozed. And whole neighborhoods were being kind of sacrificed to this building boom. So there were um, people who were alarmed by that. They were saying, you know, wait a minute. What about old Hawaii? What about our roots? What about our culture? What about our environment? Let's, let's take a breath here. Let's take a pause. And they started to hold, um, I call them listening sessions. At the time, I think they just called them, you know, community meetings. Mm -hmm. But they, they went around all of the islands and had these community talk story sessions. And they said, you know, what do you value about your community? What do you care about? And certainly economic development was part of it. Housing was part of it. Infrastructure is part of it. But a big part of it was we're not like Southern California. You know, we're not mm -hmm. like other places. We are Hawaii. And so there was a sense of, can we protect what's precious and special? Um, yes, change is going to happen. Yes, development's going to happen. Can it be more targeted? Can it be more appropriate? And so after those talk story sessions, they, they gathered and had this big conference in the Monarch Room at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Waikiki. So this was in 1974. And 500 people came together and they said, we're going to make an organization. So Historic Hawaii Foundation was essentially born in the Monarch Room with the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Wow. And at the end of that meeting, they decided to incorporate it as a nonprofit. They decided they would be member-based. And the idea of members is to be tied to those communities, to be grassroots, to have people um, have their voices heard. So it wasn't just a closed group of, you know, 12 people that talked to each other. It was, it was always this kind of grassroots member um, community-based organization. And we've been going for, at this point, 47 years and um, have continued with that idea of this place matters. People have a voice in protecting this place. And we need to um, obviously be relevant, but we also need to be fierce in our protection. So that's, that's where we started and that's how we, you know, tried to continue ever since. So with your membership, I mean, how many members do you have today 
We have approximately a thousand members, and it it varies. Um, it's always an interesting question because is one membership record one member, or is it their whole household, or is it you know everyone they bring? Mm. So um, our mailing list is about thirty five hundred, um, but you know people who actually annually say here's my dues and I'm a member and I vote at the annual meeting and so forth. It's about a thousand. Okay, and um, as it is it like um just for those that are listening and might be interested, what are your dues and how does it work to be a member? So the dues start at $50 a year. We do have a student rate. And so we do encourage students to get involved, you know, at, at the beginning of their, their career and their community service. And then it's just a sliding scale going up to $5,000. So people can give as much or as little as they're um, comfortable and have the ability to support. And being a member, um, there's obviously the annual dues, but there's also the ability to attend the annual meeting, vote for the board of directors, um, hear the annual report and so forth. It's really more of a statement of support for the mission than it is about, you know, you get something. Um, we don't yeah. give away keychains or t-shirts or <laughs> anything like that. It's, it's really about being part of a community of people that care about this mission. Yeah, for sure. So. What exactly do you guys do um, what all encompassing, you know, with your mission that you guys have? What, what, what do you actually do so everybody can have a better idea of, you know, how to either support you or to volunteer or, um, you know, maybe join you? It's a great question. Um, because we're statewide, we have to tailor our services and what we do to the needs of each community. So I realized long ago that there's no way that one organization can save everything that needs to be saved. You know, there's not enough time, money, energy, people, it's not possible. And so the, the goal here is to build a network, build a community of people that all together can work on identifying the special places and the tools that help them engage in um, preserving, protecting, funding, taking care of those places. So we focus a lot of our energy on um, letting people know what is special about Hawaii. You know, what, what's out there? Where did it come from? Why is it here? Who was involved? What's, what's the design? What's the, the construction technique? You know, what do we have? Why do we have it? Where did it come from? You know, so that kind of public education. And then the next step is, what are the tools available to us? You know, what are the techniques, the standards, the guidelines, the incentive programs, the regulatory programs, what are they? And so a lot of our work is um, trying to understand them and share them, but also to shape them, you know, to help shape the regulations, to shape the legislation, to shape the standards. And then the the third part is applying them. You know, do people have access to incentive programs, whether that's tax credits or um, finding a good handyman who can help you fix your windows, you know? And so that idea of first we have to know what we have, then we have to know how to take care of it, and then we need to have tools where people can actually apply them. So those are roughly the, the buckets that we work in. And um, depending on whether someone's an individual homeowner, they might have a different level of interest than, say, the leader of a government agency. You know, mm -hmm. they may be looking at maybe a policy level versus, I have a historic home, how do I fix my kitchen, right? And mm -hmm. so we try to have tools at, at all those different levels. And then the other thing that people get, I think, really excited about is just learning more. You know, what's in your backyard? So especially before the pandemic, we tried to have a lot of tours and hands-on activities and just getting people out there. But one of the things we learned during this time of virtual gathering is better ways to share online. You know, so we have some virtual tours, we have a lot of Zoom-based presentations, um, talk stories, just somebody saying, here's a place I care about, let me tell you about it. So that's been really fun too. All right. Well, I guess the next step is to dive into um, what is historic preservation and um, like how does it work and um, what does that consist of? So I know that you do partner with, like you're not necessarily 
the curators of everything and making sure everything is um, preserved. But, you know, just maybe some of the partners, I, I'm assuming museums or individuals that own some of these, I mean, sometimes it might be landmarks or homes. Um, but yeah, maybe you can dive into that a little bit. Preservation is a bit of an umbrella term, and it covers a lot of different types of activities. So a um, little bit of, I guess, vocabulary. Um, but if you think of it as a continuum of everything from, um, let's take care of what we have. You know, basically good housekeeping and maintenance is preservation. If you're treating for termites and fixing the roof, the roof and making sure the faucet doesn't drip, that's preserving a place, right? Mm -hmm. um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is the museums and the um, historic house museums, you know, where like Iolani Palace, where they want it to be as meticulous and exact as it was in 1873, and you have, you know, velvet ropes and gloves. So everything in between is also preservation. So it's not only about museums and artifacts, it's also about places where we live and play and gather and shop and worship. And, you know, so if you think of, um, I'll, I'll say Ala Moana Park, which is a regional park that everyone loves. That park is on the State Register of Historic Places. And it, you know, is built in the 1930s. It has these wonderful art deco features um, it's got this rich history, but it's a gathering place. And taking care of that park is also preservation. So mm -hmm. think of it as everything from good housekeeping to museums, and in between is just um, caring for and being a good steward of um, our community spaces. Now, how do you help either the community or the state and city and county preserve these places? Because well, I'm just gonna bring up one that's close to home for us is the um, Pearl Harbor Historic Trail. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled on this, the one, the part that we've kind of been working on is about five mile stretch that runs along Pearl Harbor's kind of bay. And um, it starts at the stadium and kind of ends, um, getting closer to uh, like Waipahu side and you know that area and um, it continues on and there's a way that it could all, all the way connect to Kapolei but the part that's been pretty bad has been this area that we clean up and during the pandemic we had um, it, it wasn't seen any any cleanups for like 18 months so last April we did a cleanup and um, hui together about 30 different groups and had over 300 volunteers, you know, spaced out in groups of 10 and everything to follow protocol during COVID. And this year we're doing it again. We, we, we do it, you know, twice a year, one in October and one then, but it's, um, it has so much history to it. And it has all these, um, you know, natural springs. And then you've got, the history of Pearl Harbor and you've got, you know, all of this flowing in down this strip and there's so many people along it and, and all of these different owners and all of these community um, supporters. But there's, I mean, I, I feel like most don't know the history. And um, I was just talking to Andrea about it too, that um, maybe there was a way we could put together like a flyer or, something about this you know and and have i don't know maybe i don't know if you guys is it on a registry is this something that you guys have on your list by chance i don't even know <laughs> that is a great example of a community pulling together to care for a place right and the pearl harbor historic trail as you mentioned has lots of segments and so it's um, mostly intact, but there's some breaks in between, you know, where the trail was never quite completed. And, and so when you talk about caring for it, it's mostly things like picking up rubbish, clearing out vegetation, um, maybe patching the, the pavement or the concrete, right? But it's also about things like the historic signs, 
what, mm -hmm. what was this place? What do you see from it? Those springs are a great example. You know, freshwater springs along the coastline um, were precious and still are. And of course, all of Pearl Harbor used to be lined with native Hawaiian fish ponds. And so many of those have been filled and you know, built on top of, but, but underneath the surface layer, those, those fish ponds are still there. And so if people can learn more about the landscape and these features and these cultural connections, um, then they tend to have more of a sense of pride. Mm -hmm. And with pride comes um, a sense of stewardship and caretaking and wanting to be um, good caretakers of this special place. But if all they see is a bunch of um, illegal dumping and overgrown kiawe trees and some you know, rubbish, and you don't feel safe out there and whatever, then, then that erodes it. And pretty soon you forget what made this special in the first place. So it, it's never done. I mean, that's the thing about preservation too. You're never finished. You can never say, oh, we built the trail and we're done. You know, you have to be able to go back and say, let's take care of it. And whether that's these community work days or, you know, an adopt a trail or um, just refreshing the signs every once in a while or doing a new map or, you know, sharing those stories in some ways, it all matters. And it's, it's all part of the preservation ethic. Yeah. So, I mean, I was learning about, I guess, a, I, I just saw a link right before this that Andrea had sent me. Uh, I think it's on Hilo and this really cool interactive project that you guys worked on online. And it has a map with different places and it kind of goes through um, historical backgrounds of these different locations in Hilo, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't get a chance to look at it. But things like that, I feel like you said, it does really give people an understanding. And I think more and more people are wanting that, um, that type of education and finding value in, even if, if they're tourists, even if they're coming to a place, I think people are wanting to see that culture and that history and learn about it and be able to um, feel more than just a luau or things like that. So having these, um, these things that you guys put together, I think it's very valuable to um, that preservation and that support for that community. So I am going to definitely have to chat with you later about if there's a way that we could do something like this for this trail, because there's so many points along the way that would be really neat to either have something interactive on your phone or even to the point of having um, plaques up, you know, along this path to activate it and have it be um, an educational piece for our community. Because as of right now, it, it is just a path that people use as a commute or just, you know, for leisure and not necessarily education. So, yeah. But technology gives us so many more opportunities to share the story because the, the signs or the wayside markers that are actually in the place, I love those. You know, I'm one of those people that goes to the national parks and stop at every wayside pullout, <laughs> every word on every sign. It's, um, it drives people crazy, but you know, I love that. But not everyone can go to the national park and pull off on every wayside, you know? Right. And so having the virtual visitation and also something you can go back to, you know, that offers a new way of engagement. So the Hilo example you just shared, um, we call it the Hilo story map. And these story maps are a um, GIS enabled um, system, right? But you don't have to have a GIS app. You, it's just browser based. And so you can see- Does it, it know where you are in reference to- it, That one does not, but we have another one for the um, Hawaii Capital District in downtown Honolulu. And that one actually has like a little path, like start here and go here and you can kind of follow it. So if you have it on your phone and you're, you're actually there, you can kind of walk through and take them um, here, stop one, here, stop two, here, stop three. Um, but you don't have to, you know, you can do it on, from your desk or, you know, just wherever you are. So we've, we've done, our first one was the Hawaii Capital District. So starting with Iolani Palace and kind of walking through the whole heart of Honolulu Civic Center. And then we did another one for Haleiwa on the North Shore on Oahu. 
So that's another one you can explore. And then Hilo on Hawaii Island. And each one of them looks a little bit different, but they all have a map. They all have sort of essays about the historic context or, or background of the place. And then they have sites. You know, and so you are here, you look at this building, you look at this fish pond, you look at this landing area, and it tells you a little bit about it. Um, all of them have contemporary photos, you know, what does it look like now? Um, the Hilo one also has archival photographs and maps where you can kind of go back and say, what did it look like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? And um, we're working on one right now for Honaka'a, also on Hawaii Island. So that should be released for later this summer. And our idea is to just keep picking historic areas around the state and telling their stories through these story maps. And, and we're very fortunate. We've partnered with Cultural Surveys Hawaii, which, which is an archaeological and um, cultural resource management firm. And they have the technology, you know, they have the oh, GIS, wow. they've got the, the tech side, but they also have the maps, they have that archaeological and context data. And then we've been partnering with local um, academics and schools. So with Capital District, we worked with Mid-Pacific Institute and their historic preservation class. So a bunch of um, juniors and seniors actually did some wow. of the research and writing. For Hilo and Honoka'a, we're working with UH Hilo and their history department. And so this became part of their um, school assignment, you know, to learn research techniques, to learn how do you read these maps? How do you find these archival information? How do you make sense of it? So it's also an educational project in that way. Hmm, maybe um, LCC or something. <laughs> <laughs> So that's exciting too, because people like to learn how to um, find information, right? Even if they don't become professional historians, um, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, people who like to research their family history, you know, where they get into genealogy and where was great grandma born and that sort of thing. This is sort of researching the genealogy of a place. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's something that like you said, it's just going to give a purpose to that location. I mean, we pull out, we've been pulling out eight to 12 tons of trash. There are probably 30 cars that we're trying to um, get off of the Navy land as we speak. It's been very difficult. And, um, you know, there's a lot of homeless encampments that um, need to be removed. There's, there's places where we want everybody to feel safe because with these cars, they turn into like chop shops, you know, like where, you know, there's stolen cars and then there, you know, it turns into illegal activity that takes place. So because of those things, uh, we do have HPD coming in and, you know, kind of, you know, making sure that during our cleanups and everything, that everything's good. And then when we do have things cleared out, um, you know, some of these nonprofit organizations, a Rotary Club, for example, right by Blaisdell Park, is working on the springs area, the natural spring area, and they're planting native plants and manicuring it and taking care of it. And what it looked like a year ago and what the city has done to, you know, remove a lot of the vegetation. And now it's, you know, blossoming into something that can be, um, you know, aesthetically pleasing in addition to educational. So those are the kinds of things that I'm always eager to support and to see how much interest we've gotten within the community has been huge. And that's why I think something like this would be a great add-on to encourage other members within our community in Pearl City and IEA and even Waipahu, you know, even going all the way to um, Kapolei at this point will ever beach to Kapolei because there is plans to connect it due to the rail and it does run along the rail. So there's a lot of um, people and funding that will be going to this trail in the future and near future, I say. Uh, we're working with Congress, um, congressmen and you know, members as well to um, move this forward and the mayor. So I think a lot of this would be really great to um, just activate it. So 
that's awesome. Now that's just one little piece of what you guys do. I mean, like it's actually like a small little piece, but you know, just because it's ever so present and we've, this is Earth Month actually right now. And um, we have our cleanup coming up on the 23rd um, of April which I'm not too sure if this is going to air in time, but I mean, you know, these are the kinds of things that are on top of mind for me. And I'm like, oh, we definitely need to talk about it. Um, maybe we can switch gears and talk about some other things, um, which is, in, you know, definitely along the lines of my real estate career is um, the historic homes. So I would love to jump into this one as well. We're about halfway through our time frame here. So it'd be good to um, dive into historic homes and um, architecture. That would be, be fun to, to jump into. So feel free. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I was growing up, um, my mom would love to take us to open houses and even you know she wasn't buying a house but she just liked to go into houses and she called it her goldilocks syndrome you know after the goldilocks and the three bears where you know this little girl breaks into the three bears house and pokes into all the closets and eats their porridge and sleeps in their bed um she wasn't that bad but i mean my mother was <laughs> that bad but she was she would always just talk about how much she loves homes and loves houses and she would always drive down this this one um kind of tree-lined boulevard that had pretty modest homes but they were all you know probably 70 80 years old and they all had the same setback and the same kind of roof lines but they were all individual too and she would just say oh i love this street and so that that kind of sense of what makes a neighborhood what makes a home um it's it's obviously the architecture, but it's also um, the setting, you know, whether it's the trees and the yards and the neighborhood parks and um, how people get together and, and just sort of the stories of the families that have lived there over time. So I always, I always think of her and her Goldilocks syndrome um, when I talk to people about their homes, because it, it does, it comes through. They start to say, I love my kitchen. I love the light that comes in and how I grow my herbs in the window and I can, you know, look out and see my yard or, or, um, you know, it just that sense of safety and belonging and continuity. So I think of our historic neighborhoods, our historic homes as one of the just special precious assets um, of, of Hawaii. And so yeah, there's, there's different programs to recognize that. Um, obviously, the Hawaii Register of Historic Places is one that people can say they can nominate their home or their neighborhood, you know, like um, Lower Manoa, College Hill area. It's the whole area was nominated, you know, so it wasn't just here a house, there a house, there were a house. It, it's, you know, the whole kind of district. And then the idea is, you know, the history, the context, when was it subdivided? Who was the developer? Are there architectural styles? You know, you think of the Tudor revival homes at the base of Diamond Head or kind of the gingerbread homes in Kahala, mm -hmm. or, you know, those gracious 1920s kind of colonials in Manoa or um, the plantation homes in Eva Villages or, uh, you know, there's, they all have their own character and personality. So these, these different programs basically to help people save that. You know, there are tax breaks for historic homes on, on property taxes. Um, Could you explain what those are? Just, just people are probably curious. Yeah, and um, basically city and county, actually all of the counties, not just Honolulu, they offer different property tax, either reductions or credits um, for different community benefits. You know, it, it might be, um, for nonprofit organizations or for um, childcare centers or you know schools or hospitals. Um, so basically the idea is there's a benefit that comes to the public that the city can support by reducing their taxes rather than by just giving them money um, because mm -hmm. you know it's, it's easier to reduce taxes. Um, so one of those programs is to um, offer a tax, a property tax reduction if you dedicate the historic home for preservation. So basically, um, 
saying it won't be redeveloped, it won't be demolished, you'll keep the character that makes it historic in the first place, you know, so you're committing to preserving this historic place and making it viewable to the public, not that the public can go inside and kind of rummage through your closets, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's my mother, but not the general public. Um, so you don't get to, you don't have to, you know, just throw it open to, to anyone, but, but they do have the benefit of, of seeing these neighborhoods and experiencing that place and being able to see it from the outside. So by taking on those conditions and those responsibilities, it, it's basically a 10-year program where the property owner says, I will preserve this historic property. And the county says, we will reduce your taxes. And as long as everyone um, continues to meet those conditions, this property tax continues. So there's a whole process, of course. First, it has to be on the historic register. Then you have to apply for this tax break. Then you have to meet all the inspections and make sure the conditions are being met. But as a result, the property tax reduction means that hundreds of these homes are saved, you know, that otherwise might not be. So I think of, you know, Eva Villages, and um, which is a lower income community, it allows them to save these homes and they might not be other, able to otherwise. Mm -hmm. So when the home is under, you know, they actually are on the registry, it's a, you said it's a 10 year stint. So does that well, mean- let, let, me, let me clarify. One, there, it's two different programs. One is on the register, which is a state program. Mm -hmm. And one is a property tax reduction. Um, and that's a county program. And to get the property tax reduction, you have to do both. It has to be on the register and you have to meet the conditions for the property tax reduction. Um, but you can be on the register without getting a tax break. And just because you don't get a tax break doesn't mean you're off the register. Yeah. You know? So it's, people have to remember that um, being on the historic register is forever with or without a tax break. It's, it's a commitment you make. The tax break is just to make it easier. What happens if somebody the sells the property to somebody else? It runs with the land. So the, the historic designation is for the property, not for the property owner. Um, mm -hmm. So um, the property can be bought, sold, inherited, transferred, leased, rented, um, doesn't matter. It's still a historic property. And then what if they don't follow the guidelines and they start doing something to the house? <laughs> that's always a danger, right? And so part of the um, system that's in place is permit review. So when a property owner wants to do something, um, you know, <laughs> I can't even think of a good example, change out all the windows, add an addition, you know, paint it, not painting, well, actually painting too. Um, if, it, if it triggers a permit, then that goes through a permit review process. So painting doesn't trigger a permit. So people can paint without anyone ever looking at it and saying, oh, the, you know, why did you paint that home purple? You know, <laughs> um, they, they, there's no review. And so that's where education matters, you know, where we can let people know what, what is appropriate or not appropriate for taking care of these historic homes or, histor or other buildings or properties too, not just homes. The sound is getting softer. Oh. I'm not too sure why. Um, can you hear me okay? Yep. Yeah, oh, okay, it sounds really soft now. Hold on. I'm at 100%, sorry. Maybe just talk a little closer. I'm not too sure why it just, it started going shh. <laughs> But it's still recording. Okay. Sorry, I don't know how to fix that. How bizarre. Um, well, we're kind of getting close to our time anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could hear you. It's just, it just noticeably got softer for some reason. But go on. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> oh, you were talking about um, the different things that you could do to a home with a permit. Yes, yes, yeah, the permit review. So the idea is if people know um, what are the best practices, what are the standards, what are the guidelines, how can they um, be good caretakers of a place? They can obviously choose to do that. You know, nobody, you can decide you're going to take care of a, a place, but they need to know how. And so a lot of our educational programs are about that. You know, what are those standards? What are those guidelines? Who can do the work? How, how do you know? 
And then the second part is if you're getting a permit, both the county reviewers and the state historic preservation division reviewers will look at it and say, are you meeting those standards and guidelines, yes or no? And if yes, good, go forward. If no, then they'll tell you how you can. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of check and balance, you know, for committing to taking care of a place, you need to know how to do that. And then these, the permit review um, says, here's how you do that. So that's how it works. Yeah. That's simplified, so of course. It's, but. it's not that you can't renovate um, or update things, you know, to, you know, have a new toilet or certain things like that. Okay. But, um, right. And then from my understanding, a lot of it too is the visual aesthetics of what it looks like from the street as well because you're also wanting to make sure that the people that let's say they go on tours or they want to look at some of these homes because they're on the registry they're able to go when what day is it on a Saturday which Saturday of the second month? Saturday of every month um so, and it's again from the outside you know just yeah. visual from the outside no you're absolutely right there's a a continuum of um, what makes it livable. So yes, upgrade the plumbing, upgrade the wiring, add Wi-Fi, have security systems, but in a way that respects the character and doesn't just, you know, take out all your original wooden double hung windows and put in, you know, prefab vinyl, <laughs> you know, you <laughs> do that. Um, but also there's a hierarchy, you know, the the outside is higher priority than the inside. The public spaces are higher priority than the private spaces. So something like the, the front elevation you see from the street is more important than the utility closet. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a obvious thing, but you'd look more at the, the bulk and the mass and the materials are more important than the doorknobs. Um, which isn't to say you can't have beautiful crystal doorknobs and- Which and I totally there. was gonna say. Of course. <laughs> Um, it's just that if you're making trade-offs, you know, and so usually we see a lot of updated kitchens, a lot of updated bathrooms, a lot of updated wiring, but you can, because you don't want the old knob and tube wiring that's going to burn your house down, right? <laughs> you wanna I mean, like that. to code and you want to like yeah, absolutely. much more and, safer, yeah. And even things like accessibility, you know, you want to, especially as people age in place, you want to have things like ramps and maybe elevators if, you know, if the home is big enough or if people need um, accommodations. All that's fine, but the standards tell you how to do it in a way that's respectful and harmonious and not just sort of stuck onto the front and, and just kind of looking weird. Yeah, so there are homes out there that when you do purchase, they're already on the registry and set up this way. And then there's also homes that are not that would be perfect candidates. So, you know, you people are may consider putting their home on the registry. And then do, do they come to you first um, to ask for directions or what to do? So there's a formal process and an informal process. Um, so I'm actually happy to tell you that we are working right now on a website and a brochure specifically for realtors and their clients. Oh, so awesome. later this month, um, we will be releasing that. And the Honolulu Board of Realtors is celebrating their um, centennial anniversary this year. And so they're planning on having that be part of their kind of rollout for the centennial. But it'll answer a lot of these questions. It'll awesome. say, you know, what does it mean to buy or sell a historic home? What does it mean to own a historic home? Where can I get more information? So we'll be sharing that out in the next couple of weeks. And then also on our website, historicwaii.org, there's a downloadable PDF that talks about the whole process. You know, how do you research? How do you complete the nomination form? What are some of these architectural terms? What are some, where do you find information? And, you know, like many things, you can either do it yourself or you can hire someone to do it, depending on your time and level of interest. But um, that guide, that how-to guide is a wonderful place just to learn more. Um, and then the formal process is basically through the state. It's the mm -hmm. State Historic Preservation Division. And then there's a, um, a board called the Hawaii Historic Places Review Board that's appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate. And that board is responsible for reviewing these nominations, 
and deciding, first of all, are they complete? You know, do they tell us everything we need to know in the form we need to know it with, you know, the photos and the maps and everything we need? And then number two, did they make their case? Did this meet our criteria for being a historic property? Is it documented? Is it complete? Is it accurate? And um, then they make findings to say, yes, we believe it's historic because of its architecture or historic because it, it's associated with a historic person or an historic event or because of its archaeology or, you know, and they make findings. They hold a public hearing. Um, so the nominator gets to speak, the property owner gets to speak, the public gets to speak, and they can describe, you know, what is this place? Why is it important? How is it significant? And then the review board votes and they say, yes, we're going to list it or no, we're not going to list it. Sometimes they say, go back and do more work and come back to us. And then once it's listed, it's official, you know, so that's the, um, the formal process. But before it ever gets to them, of course, the nomination needs to be um, researched and written and completed. How many homes do we actually have on the registry? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but we do have districts where there's multiple homes in an area. I mentioned Eva Villages earlier. So, you know, there's several hundred in Eva Villages. Um, there's quite a few in Hilo. There's quite a few in Nuuanu and Manoa. Um, many, um, oh man. So, you know, a couple thousand maybe. Um, okay. Yeah. I had no idea it was that many, but that's statewide, right? Statewide, statewide, yes. Um, architecture, maybe I've always been a fan of Ozipov and I know I wanted to find a way to learn or figure out how many um, Ozipov homes there are. I don't know how to even find something like that out in in um, Hawaii or on our, on our island anyhow. Um, but things like that, I guess, was there specific design? You've mentioned some of them off the top of your head, but um, you know, were there specific architectural designs that were known here in Hawaii or that were brought here um, that are pretty common that you can mention really quick when people are, you know, just out and about and seeing certain things or maybe landmarks that you can mention so they'll recognize them? I think people who um, grew up in Hawaii or have spent a lot of time here, they, they know them, but they might not know that they know them. But if you go back to um, the first Polynesian voyagers landing on these shores, you know, they brought with them the building traditions of um, Tahiti and um, Marquesas and, you know, the, the Polynesian islands. And obviously they used natural materials, you know, so wood, stone, shell. And so if you think of like the earliest building types, um, there's the monumental architecture like heiau or fish ponds. It's basically dry stack rocks and mm -hmm. maybe a, a gate or an altar out of uh, lashed wood. And so wood and stone and um, natural materials are very much that Hawaiian architecture. And I think even fast forwarding 800 years, we still see that use of wood and stone and natural materials, not only in the landscape, but in the buildings themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think really resonates with people. You know, they'll see these cut basalt um, commercial buildings downtown and, you know, that's Hawaiian bluestone, you know, or they'll see um, ohia wood floors, you know, and that's native wood flooring or um, posts that hold up the carport, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, besides the monumental kind of engineering works, other than that, Native Hawaiian pre-contact architecture was very light on the land. You know, it was um, posts and thatch roofs. Um, each, each building had its function. You know, you'd have the sleeping house and the the lanai, which is basically just sort of a sun shelter. You'd have um, the cooking area, you know, but but they were for their purpose. They, you didn't have some architect going, I know, I'll do something sculptural and neat and everyone will look at it and point at it. You know, that's a kind of Western idea that came later. 
But then with Western contact came new construction techniques, came new architectural techniques. So whether that was um, ships, you know, shipbuilders, they brought joinery and um, um, rope making. And, you know, so you look at sort of like old Lahaina town and that whaling industry and the mm. old Lahaina prison. And, you know, they brought joinery because that's what you used on ships. You didn't have nails, right? Because they rot and rust and, and break your ship. But the introduction of nails, iron, bracing systems, you know, that came with Western contact. And then later when, um, especially when Japanese immigration came and they brought the um, really skilled carpentry of fitting together different wood pieces and joinery. And that became part of the um, sugar and pineapple plantations, you know, that really skilled craftsmanship for building the um, plantation towns. So you start to see all of this coming together into a very unique kind of Hawaiian regional style. So um, especially late 1800s to about 1940, you see it in um, plantation towns, you know, Haleiwa or Paia or Hana, um, you know, Hilo, you see them. And then the commercial areas, you know, built on that and they would have the um, the cut stone and, and the masonry work and later brick. And so, you know, you just kind of see this layering and layering. And then in the 20th century, we get more of that high style, you know, and so think of, oh, I don't know, the Museum of Art or the YWCA or the Royal Hawaiian Hotel or mm -hmm. the Alexander and Baldwin Building or the Dillingham Transportation Building, you know, very solid, the we are here, we are, prosperous, we are um, international, you know, and, and even earlier than that, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but think about Iolani Palace or Ali Iolani Hale, you know, now the Judiciary Building, which are more European in style, kind of Italianate, you know, but they bring in that idea of internationalism. And of course, Hawaii is the crossroads between um, Asia and North America. So you also get a lot of Japanese and Chinese influences and um, not just in the ornamentation, but in the actual construction techniques. So it's just a beautiful layering of people and place and cultural influences and those um, all those different groups coming together and sharing what they had to bring, kind of like our food, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's right. our culture and it's really neat to see it all layered within everything that we do so it's not just our food it's not just our people it's you know it's it's the place and even the homes you know and the, the places that we've built over the years so I mean it's all really fascinating and the more that you you know dig deeper and study all of this the more you find out about our culture and um like you said it resonates with you even if you're not born and raised here i mean i'm born and raised here but even if you're not um you do come to appreciate how it it was created and who created it and and why it's the way it is today and that's a unique thing about hawaii you know and i mean that's why we all love it and that's why there's people like you a lot of people that I'm interviewing all the time that are sustainable leaders of Hawaii um, are drawn to Hawaii for whatever reason. Um, their gifts and the things that they've learned are brought to Hawaii to make Hawaii better, um, like yourself. So, I mean, thank you. Thank you for um, being on this podcast and sharing your story and um, the Historic Hawaii Foundation story. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been so fun. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, I know. We're like running out of time. There's so much more that we could address, but, you know, that would be part two, I would say. Um, but one thing, uh, because I'm definitely an advocate for green building and sustainability, climate change and everything, um, the focus on the homes and being able to preserve homes and use what's already existing is very important. Sometimes it may seem that it is, you know, it takes more work to work off of something and not just swipe it clean and start all over. But all of those materials there that are salvageable and being able to use and, you know, continue it on or preserve it is um, 
allowing for things to not be put into um, the landfills or burned an incinerator. And, you know, then also not having to cut down more trees to start from scratch and things like that. So doing it this way is a more green and sustainable measure. Um, I'm hoping to work soon with a um, individual who's going to be renovating a home, which is, I believe, 83 years old, and um, to preserve it, right, and to um, take what's there and use what they can instead of, you know, tearing the whole thing down. Um, she's also worked on deconstruction of a home when need be um, versus tearing it down and it all going to the landfill. So a lot of these things, they do kind of overlap, but it is within our community and making sure that we are more sustainable as a community and um, that can we I can- just, Can I just mention, and thank you for, for really emphasizing the, the inherent sustainability of preservation. Because when you think about the energy that went into building these places, whether it's the materials or the labor or the shipping, you know, it, it took energy. And now that energy is embodied in that place. And if you demolish a place, you lose that, that energy, you know, so that it, it's kind of like carbon sinks, right? That um, these existing places um, reduce our carbon reduction. They reduce our, our need for new materials, for new shipping, for the fuel that takes, you know, to bring this across the ocean. Very expensive fuel now. And, and so just taking care of what we have is inherently more environmentally sustainable than tearing it down and then replacing it with something else. And they can be retrofit. You know, you can add hot water heaters or solar panels or have more efficient shower heads. You know, those, those things are certainly able to be done. But just taking care of what we have is um, environmentally responsible. Yeah. So I, I'll just say a few years ago, we did a um, series of six classes on um, sustainability measures for homes, for heritage homes. And those videos and materials are on historicwhite.org on, on our website. So we're hoping to be able to let people know more about things they can do, whether it's with their landscape or with water or with energy, you know, but taking care of what we have and then doing that kind of retrofit to make it even better is mm -hmm. absolutely the future. Yeah, and even though our homes are not a specific set to be on the historic registry, you know, moving forward in the way we do things can always, you, you could do this with any home, right? Because That's you're right. going to want to preserve your home, you know, regardless of how it was built or what it was built from or at what time. I mean, if there are some little tricks or little things that we can do, um, it's always good to share those with everybody. And, um, stay tuned, I guess, because it seems like you guys will have some helpful tips as well. Um, and we'll be sure to uh, support you and promote those once when they're out and feature them for sure. Thank you. It's exciting. So we, she has already told us where to visit. So it's Hawaii, no, historichawaii.org. And you can go check out their website for a lot of this information. They have a lot of blogs and other things. When it came, there was a whole bunch of links too that I saw that was focused on like climate change, flood adaptation, natural disasters, sea level rise, fire damage, a lot of things that you can do to prevent these type of, you know, like how to preserve yourself, your, your, um, your environment or your space or your homes um, with, these specific things that might come about, right? So lots of helpful things there for you. In addition to, they have a Facebook page, Instagram, that you can check out, like their, their um, pages as well. And then is there, what's the best way to reach you that you would like to share in the public to everybody? <laughs> um member at historichawaii.org um, is the best email address if people are looking for information and of course the website um, we're mostly still working remotely so um, we try to answer the phone but um, we're not always in the office but that's 808-523-2900 
Awesome. Are you guys going to start doing more in-person things or do you think most of the things that you'll do will be um, online? At this point, we're looking at slowly bringing back some in-person, but we're not going to discontinue our online. Um, our virtual programming has been very popular. It's reached a lot of people and we anticipate that continuing. Um, so we have a lot of programs scheduled for the next couple of months and um, people can sign up for our e-newsletter and that comes out once a week with with updates that's free you can sign up through the website and um, as it becomes viable to do again we'll be bringing back some in-person events but um, that's still a ways off yeah well until then uh thank you so much i I've only met you once in person, but maybe we'll have to meet again soon. And I would love to talk to you about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> um, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which is at www.smartlivinghi.org. You can also follow us on Instagram as well and Facebook. And um, our podcasts are on any platform that is pretty common out there. And you've just type in Smart Living Hawaii and you'll find us. So thank you so much. And until next time, live smart. Mahalo, everybody. Thanks, Christina.